Bitcoin is a system that manufactures what Nick Land calls absolute succession. It, it is pure time. It's absolute time. The first time that we've ever been able to build an artificial time machine, not time machine in the sense of time travel or anything corny like that, but a machine that produces absolute time. Hey, what's going on podcast listeners? This is Justin. Just a quick interjection before we get onto the podcast. You just heard a clip from this week's podcast. I just wanted to give you some background on it. This is going to be the recording of a short lecture that I gave on Bitcoin and philosophy. Uh, it draws largely on Nick Land's perspective. Nick Land wrote a short, uh, but still, I think, very underrated book called Cryptocurrent in the past couple of years. And I think it's awesome and fascinating, a really, really rich and generative uh, book and set of perspectives, which I've been rereading. And so this lecture is largely colored by that, but it's a close reading of the Bitcoin white paper. And we had some people from the other life community join us for a bit of a seminar discussion following it, a little Q&A and, and discussion after this lecture. I, I cut that bit off. This is just going to be the lecture. And yeah, just wanted to give you that background for what you're about to listen to. I hope you find it interesting. I find this stuff just absolutely incredibly exciting. Uh, to me, this is kind of the frontier of philosophical research right now. That, that's kind of most exciting. So I hope you agree. And if you want to learn more or you want to see the lecture notes and you know follow along my kind of research on this domain, you can just go to otherlife.co. Make sure you're subscribed to the, to the free newsletter to get my text posts and essays and stuff like that as well. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate you. It's remarkably short for such a significant and an impressive discovery or innovation. It's extremely compressed. Nick Land makes a lot about this. I, I should say probably that a lot of my interpretation of the Bitcoin system from a philosophical perspective is influenced by Nick Land. He wrote a, I think, really quite remarkable and still very underrated unpublished book on Bitcoin and philosophy. It's called Cryptocurrent. The, the paper is almost creepy in a way. It was published on Halloween of 2008. It's published under, of course, a pseudonym. And something else that stands out about the paper is there's no academic fanfare whatsoever, right? There's none of this song and dance that you see in a lot of technical journal articles where it's citing this long uh, history of previous literature. It's incredibly condensed in the Genesis block, the very first block of the Bitcoin system in January 2009, Satoshi famously embedded a newspaper headline that reads the Times, referring to the, the English newspaper, 03 January 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So there's this explicitly incendiary political headline that is lodged into the very first block of the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. Rather fascinating. But what it means is anyone's guess. Obviously, they had been working on it for a long time. It was not this thing that was made in response to the 2008 crisis, but it's already being loaded politically and philosophically. And of course, the target of the paper, the target of the analysis, the target of the innovative system that's being presented here. If there's really one thing that all of the effort seems to be directed towards, it is the very idea of trusted third parties. 
You see it very clearly in the abstract and you see it throughout. That seems to be what all of this is about. It's about routing around trusted third parties. And before we go any deeper, I want to maybe foreshadow a little bit more on the philosophical and political front. We'll talk more about this towards the end after we go over some of the, the basic technical concepts in the paper. But of course, the entire gradient of modernity is the routing of trusted third parties. Routing around third parties can be seen as early as someone like Martin Luther routing around the trusted third party that is the, the Catholic Church that was at one time seen as a necessary provider of the mediation between God and man. Bitcoin is just perhaps a radicalization of precisely this phenomenon that in, in some ways defines modernity itself. If there is a vector to modern history, that would be the vector. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means for philosophy, for science, because of course, the great modern skeptics like Descartes and Hume applied this, this spirit of not trusting third parties also to the basic ideas of what it means to be a person, of what is real and what is not real. How do I even know that I exist? Philosophers and scientists also in the modern period routed around third parties. So we'll return to this, especially when we talk about Kant at the end. Nick Land's argument is that the Bitcoin blockchain is essentially a radical vindication of Kantian philosophy. The paper is quite technical, and depending on your level of, of technical prowess, you can zoom in uh, to different degrees. I think what's most productive for this lecture is to remain at a fairly high level. My goal will be to provide for you a what, what I think is a competent rendition of the technical system, but in a conversational tone. I think that's what educated readers of this paper should aim for, unless you're a blockchain engineer. The easiest place to start is this problem of the double spending problem. Why were we never able to have a digital cash system? We've had computers for a while, right? We've had networks for a while. Why is it that we could never just have a money system where we could all trade value on the internet together? It's really not that complicated when you think about it, but it's worth being explicit about. The basic reason is because with digital data, it's cheap and easy to lie. Basically, you can say, I gave Sasha three coins. And also I gave my sister three coins. You can do that at the very same time. And those two people are go both gonna believe that they have three more coins. That's the double spending problem in a nutshell. That's, I would say the entry level way of understanding the basic problem. The more sophisticated way of understanding it is this idea of the Byzantine generals problem. So this is a famous problem in computer science that uh, plagues all distributed systems. It doesn't loom too large in the explicit text of the Bitcoin white paper, but if you read the cryptography mailing list and the discussions that Satoshi is having with these other cryptographers around the time that he publishes the paper and after he publishes the paper, he gets a lot of questions from these different specialists and he will often use the uh, Byzantine generals problem as a way of communicating the, the stakes of the paper and, and explaining really what the Bitcoin system solves. So I think it's worth very briefly, I'll give you a summary of what this Byzantine general's problem is. I think it's important to note, to have a mental model of that. If you're going to be a competent, you know, educated reader of the uh, Bitcoin white paper, the, the story goes like this. Imagine a bunch of generals are surrounding a enemy fortress and they're all at different points around the castle that they're trying to attack. These generals have a problem. What they need to decide is when they're going to attack. They need to coordinate on the, a certain time to attack. If they all attack at the same time, they're going to win. If they all attack at different times, they're going to get destroyed. And so what they can do is they can send messengers to each other to say, hey, let's attack at this time. But the problem with that is there's a few problems. One is that different generals can send different messengers at different times. And so maybe I, I say, all right, we're going to attack at 4 p.m. I send my messenger out to tell everyone. And then a minute later, 
some new messenger comes to me and says that some other general declares we're going to attack at 4.30 p.m. It's a mess, right? <clears throat> it's actually really hard for spatially separated generals to decide on – they don't even care what time they attack. We're not even talking about a debate or a fight over which time to attack. They're all happy to attack at any time if they can just simply agree on the time. So that's actually a fairly thorny problem. And that is a kind of metaphor for any type of distributed ledger or decentralized data system. The whole problem is that I can send a message and someone else can send a message. And how do we align on which one is the true one, which is the one that everyone respects? So it's like an extended version of the double spending problem is one way to think about it. A deeper, um, more significant problem, but very similar to the double spending problem. And so... <clears throat> Briefly, I want to also just foreshadow for the philosophical implications we're going to talk about the, the parallel between this problem and the problem of time itself from a philosophical perspective. What does it mean for us to synchronize clocks uh, across space? If I want to have a clock here in Austin, Texas, and you want to have a clock in Sydney, Australia, and we want those clocks to be aligned, to be synchronized at the same time, that's actually a really hard problem, isn't it? Let alone a whole network of clocks. In a way, you can understand that also as a Byzantine general's problem, right? Because we can send messages back and forth about my clock is at this hour right now, what's yours at? And you could try to set them to be aligned. But the problem with that is it takes time for those messages to travel. And so it's a surprisingly difficult problem. Um, Poincaré was working on this problem of synchronizing clocks across space. He was working on this for the French around the same time that Einstein was working on, of course, his, his famous analysis having to do with space and time. And again, I'm just foreshadowing here for the philosophical implications, but there are real stakes here involving what is time itself? What does it even mean for there to be an order of succession at all? Not just the generals trying to agree on some practical event, but is it possible to have a, a true temporal ordering in the world at all that is radically detached from the problems of space. So we'll stay focused and we'll return to the philosophical implications, but I'm just sketching for you some of the relevant connections to anticipate, all right? And so that's the Byzantine general's problem is how do these generals agree on a time to attack? If there's one way to summarize the achievement of the Bitcoin white paper, it's to say that it solves this Byzantine general's problem with a novel system which is basically the proof of work chain. The real meat and potatoes of the technical system is just this concept of the proof of work chain, because that is what solves the Byzantine general's problem. So if you leave this session today with nothing else, I want you to have a good mental model of what it means, this concept of the proof of work chain, and specifically how it solves the Byzantine general's problem. I think if everyone can walk away with a strong, personal, authentic, understanding of that in your own language, then this will be a very successful session. <clears throat> so let me give you a, a brief rendering. Let's say we have this spreadsheet. Like I was saying before, Justin has X coins, Sasha has X coins. Instead of that just being a, a Google spreadsheet, what we really want is a kind of list of the transaction. At this time, at this day, Justin sends X coins to Sasha. This is section three, the timestamp server, is basically the part of the technology stack here, the part of the Bitcoin system where these transactions are being um, uploaded with timestamps, just dates and times that they occurred at a very high level and in a very simple way. That's essentially all that's going on here. It's called a blockchain because these transactions, uh, a few things are happening to them, which it's important to understand. One is that they're being hashed 
And maybe it's worth pausing on this concept of hashing. If you're totally unfamiliar with cartography, you'll hear this word hash a lot. You obviously read it a lot in the paper. It doesn't go over exactly what that is. So maybe it would be helpful for me to do one minute or two on this concept of hashing. A hash is basically just a cryptographic tool that where you can take basically a large set of, of data and you can reduce it into a very small string of numbers. So um, the Bitcoin system uses the, the SHA-256 system. There's many different hashing systems. And all it really means is that um, instead of uploading to the blockchain the actual raw data of um, all of the transactions, you're actually only uploading a hash. But at any time, you can, you can basically use that hash to show that um, nothing was tampered with, basically, within the hashed content. When you put that hash onto the timestamp server, you have an immutable set of transactions, a, a, a ordered set of transactions, and that being the chain. So that's basically all of these fancy technical terms like hash, block, timestamp server, transactions. Now here's where things get really interesting and the, the real innovative core, the real stroke of genius here is the proof of work aspect. So what happens in the Bitcoin system is that to bring it back to the Byzantine generals, perhaps if there's one key thing to understand it, it's we're basically getting to it, we're working up to it. It's the idea that when a general receives a message, if he is forced to perform an arbitrary set of time-consuming, energy-consuming calculations before he's able to rebroadcast the time to the rest of the network, this has this kind of bizarre, magical power of forcing all of the generals to converge on one shared time, basically. And so this is complicated. I'm doing my best to put it in plain language. And this is always, you know, challenging by that proof of work chain constantly increasing over time and constantly updating over time. It becomes prohibitively costly to submit to the network anything other than what is the convergent time to attack. So if the Byzantine generals had this shared software where they could be forced to do these proof of work exercises, then it doesn't really matter who, which general proposes which time first, and it doesn't really matter which time they propose, but basically the, they're all going to converge on the first time. I believe that's correct. I believe that's correct. And so a few interesting things to note about this. One is that what you have here basically is a distributed decentralized truth machine. It, but it's not a truth machine in the sense of any type of objective exterior content is being confirmed. All it's, re all it's really confirming and verifying in this distributed way is the order of transactions. So when we step out of the Byzantine general's metaphor and we go back to this uh, idea of, of accounts, a ledger of transactions, all it's really verifying is who moved what money first. And anyone who tries to upload to the blockchain a set of transactions that contradicts the order of transactions that actually happened in temporal ordering, it, those uploads are going to just get discarded, basically, because all of the other people doing the proof of work operations are going to see that it clearly doesn't fit what the majority of everyone else has in their chain of blocks. That's the basic logic. It's quite vexing. It's quite hard to wrap your head around. But that is the basic takeaway that I think is a nice halfway ground between super technical and conversational, sensible, plain English, is that the proof of work chain 
is kind of database system that has the profound innovative impact of solving the Byzantine generals problem and allowing a bunch of separated individuals to converge on one true temporal ordering of events. When we open it up, up to discussion in, in just about five or 10 minutes, I want to hear from people's, I want to hear your questions, your extensions, your additional points. I'm a political scientist and a political theorist. Uh, I'm not a blockchain engineer, so I'm sure um, many of you probably could do better than I can unpacking some of the technical details and what's most important to be aware of. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the philosophical and the political implications, which to me are quite resonant and, and perhaps are more in my own wheelhouse. And the reason why I'm so particularly interested in the Bitcoin white paper as a work of philosophical beauty. I, I want to return a little bit to Kant because this idea of Nick Lands is just very fascinating, very compelling. He sees this Bitcoin system as a kind of vindication of, of Kantian philosophy. I want to unpack what that means exactly and why that is. If you go back to the time of Kant, some of the foils against which he, his critical philosophy is constructed are people like Hume and Descartes. And of course, if you think back to Descartes famously with the cogito ergo sum, Descartes famously raised this question of what if I don't even exist? What if it's an illusion that I exist? He's applying this kind of radical mistrust of third parties, the, the, I, the famous motto of the, royal, of the Royal Society, the Society of Learned Men that more or less are the guys who really solidified modern scientific method as we know it. The Royal Society's motto is uh, nullius in verba, which basically means you take nobody's word for it. The, the spirit of modern science and modern philosophy is precisely the spirit of not trusting third parties and only trusting what you can verify intersubject. So already we see this kind of uh, strong parallels between the Bitcoin system and even a kind of mo a network of scientists, for instance, using modern scientific method. It's a kind, both are a routing of third parties. But you also have, with this kind of radical skepticism, you also have some excesses, right? You have people like Descartes saying, what if I don't even exist? And then, of course, you can easily think of today's modern new age types of people who, you know, maybe have done too many drugs in their life and then they don't believe anything. So this kind of modern radical skeptical spirit definitely has its problems. I thought this to some degree and Kant, his project was in large part an effort to reconstitute some certain grounds of, of, of certainty or grounds of confidence from which philosophy could become a more productive pursuit like like science and its hypothesis testing and its uh, power to generate engineering and practical applications. And so the, the key thing I want you, you all probably have different levels of familiarity with philosophy, but what Kant is most famous for, which I want everyone to, to understand is that is this idea of critical philosophy. Uh, the Kantian is sometimes called the critical method. This is the essence of Kantian philosophy, the, the, the critical method or Kantian critique. And this idea is basically to say, no, we don't want to ask silly questions like, how do I know that I exist? That's ridiculous. It's not productive. It's just navel gazing. It, it just goes nowhere. You want to ask the question, taking for granted that I exist, because Clearly, to even ask the question, something is talking, something is thinking. Let's take for granted that I exist and then ask, what are the conditions for the possibility of this experience? So what, what would have to be for me to be here asking the question about whether or not I exist? It's a very clever kind of inversion. That's the essence of what people are talking about when they talk about Kantian philosophy. It's just that simple inversion uh, of, of rejecting kind of navel gazing questions about details in favor of more productive questions about the conditions of the possibility of something. And Kant goes on to build this remarkable system. If you've ever, if you've ever read Kant's three critiques, he builds this entire edifice of thought on this kind of critical technique. And one of the most interesting things for our purpose, uh, and this will be the final thing that I leave you with. We could do many more sessions on the philosophical implications of Bitcoin, but the thing I'll leave you with here 
that I want you all to leave here today with knowing is that Kant had a fairly precise and, and somewhat radical philosophy of time. He was quite clear that he saw time and space as fundamentally distinct, and he saw them as necessary aspects of human subjectivity, essentially, that time and space are implied in the very existence of thinking beings such as ourselves. We could not think without time and space. And he was also quite emphatic in saying that they were separate dimensions, that they were absolutely distinct. He saw the, the nature of space and geometry, and he saw the nature of time and arithmetic. And what's interesting to note is that this quickly fell out of fashion, right? When you think about Einstein, for instance, perhaps the most influential and, and, and important thinker of time, an analyst of time after Kant, this is very much not the case. Einsteinian time is totally, in Einstein, of course, he talks of space-time. Space and time are these dimensions that fold into each other. He talks about space-time as a four-dimensional object or construct. So in Einstein, there is a blurring of the difference between space and time. Time is not something that stands alone. It's, it doesn't have its own uh, distinct nature in a way in, in Einsteinian time. And what's really important is to understand that this was uh, uh, happening at the same time as Poincaré was trying to figure out how to synchronize clocks for, for the French empire. Basically, the Einsteinian solution to that problem was created in large part because we did not have, we did not know how to synchronize time across space. We were not able technologically to, to, to instill and to sustain synchronized time across space. That was a vexing problem that we didn't have a full intellectual command on. And so that is one of, it's in that context that Einstein, to think these things through, is developed a certain conception of time, which more or less blends it into space as the only way to make sense out of some of these these vexing problems related to what time even is and our inability to understand, in other words, the Byzantine generals problem. What's really remarkable from a philosophical perspective is that the Bitcoin system seems to vindicate Kant, all right? Because it was in the spirit of Einstein and pretty much all of our attitudes around time in the 20th century as influenced by people like Einstein, we lost sight of time as a radically distinct vector. And people would actually make fun of Kant for being wrong on this. It was in, in part for certain details having to do with how he wrote about time. There, was some, there were some sophomoric aspects about how he thought about time. There was a kind of over-reliance on certain ideas from Euclid, which turned out to be dated and, and sophomoric. And for that reason, a lot of sophisticated theorists of time just thought Kant was totally wrong. And, and Kant was totally written off as being childish and naive when it comes to time. And Nick Land argues that the Bitcoin system is basically this technological instantiation that vindicates Kant because what it does, and this will be my final word, is that it restores to time a kind of non-dependence on space. Bitcoin is basically a system that manufactures what Nick Land calls absolute succession. It is nothing other than an order of, event, an order of events. It, it is pure time. It's absolute time. And Nick Land makes the argument that it's basically the first time that we've ever been able to actually build a machine that represents a kind of artificial time machine, not time machine in the sense of time travel or anything corny like that. But it is a machine that produces absolute time. There's much more we could say, but I don't want to attest to anyone's patience. I will leave it at that.